2: Everyone in this room is grieving. Everyone has lost, even if it's not somebody close to you has died recently. Everyone has lost a lot. You've lost part of your childhood dream. You've lost relationships. You've lost relationships with parts of yourself, probably. In a way, grief is daring us to love again. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today, I would like to begin by talking about opening the heart-mind In Sanskrit, there's not two words for heart and mind. There's one word. The heart is really the depth of the mind. The mind is the surface of the heart. When we talk about opening the heart, really, that's a developmental stage that comes after stabilizing the surface of the mind. We've talked in this group many times about the developmental stages of opening the chakras, of Uh, The evolution, historical evolution of Buddhism and how mindfulness and embodied mindfulness is a preparation for opening the heart. But I thought because we're approaching this time of the solstice, Christmas, Hanukkah, they're all about the light. And love is often perceived as light in a lot of Tibetan meditations or Hindu meditations. One sees light emanating from deities and really light is some visual expression of love. So this really is in a way the season of the awakening of love. It's the end of the darkest part of the year. Ramana Maharshi, one of my favorite teachers, says that there are really two paths to freedom. And in the beginning, you don't have to pick one. You can Play with both of them as I have been doing for a long, long time. But eventually you have to pick one. One of the paths is the path of devotion and surrender. And the other path is the path of self inquiry, of asking, not intellectually, but investigating who am I? Am I these thoughts? Am I this body? Am I these emotions? What's the subject? What's the object? What's the nature of reality? Whether we're talking about surrendering, through love and devotion and compassion into the one mind, into God, into the beloved. Or on the other hand, we're talking about a more direct path of mind of looking at the nature of reality. It eventually is about surrendering into this place of oneness, this place of one consciousness. It's all the beloved. It's all Maharaji. It's all Buddha nature. It's all Christ. I find from my own personal practice, my personality type, that exploring the path of loving surrender is much more juicy and appealing to me. And I fully admit that the path of Zen, the path of Vipassana, the path of studying the scriptures in an intellectual way, is a very legitimate path to freedom. But today we're going to talk about the path of opening the heart mind. There's two ways of looking at this. One way is, and which is what we've been doing for a a long time in this group, of investigating what it is that blocks the heart. Working with fear, working with guilt, working with shame, working with anger. There's also the direct path of just, I'm going to open up. There's the direct path of I'm gonna open the heart. What we find as we begin to open the heart is the heart is injured. If we look at the awakening of the fourth chakra, the opening of the heart chakra, it's said in some of the literature that the emotion that makes it difficult to open the heart is grief. Everyone in this room is grieving. Everyone has lost even if it's not somebody close to you has died recently. Everyone has lost a lot. You've lost part of your childhood dream. You've lost relationships. You've lost relationships with parts of yourself, probably. In a way, grief is daring us to love again. And can we begin to notice our very strongly conditioned and almost completely unconscious drive to not feel the grief, to not feel the suffering, to push it away and have a life where we're not feeling that grief. In my experience, until we begin to do conscious grief work, then opening the heart in some deeper way is going to be something that happens only very sporadically. Firstly, doing the developmental work of having an embodied mindfulness, not just mindfulness, but for most people in the West, there's a tendency to jump into the heart, jump into the mind without really honoring the body. Having a a mindfulness that's grounded, that's centered, that's honoring the lower chakras in the body dealing with the fear, the guilt, and the shame that are the demons of those lower chakras. And now we're getting to the demon of grief. The first thing is be having embodied mindfulness. And now we're coming to the heart. And as you open the heart, we find the wounds. Marion Woodman, the wonderful Canadian psychoanalyst, says that where we are wounded, that is where God can come into our hearts. It is exactly the place where we're wounded that God can God can come in. As we're opening the heart and we're beginning to feel vulnerable, and we begin in some somatic sense to remember that in the past when we became vulnerable, we got hurt, what do we do with that? Can we begin to bear that which is almost unbearable? Can we begin to trust that which we're invoking in the beginning? Can we trust Buddha, Dharma, Sangha enough? Can we trust Christ enough? Can we trust the mother enough? Can we trust our own true nature enough that as we're beginning to meet the vulnerability, the woundedness, the hurt, that we're able to bear it, to be with it. The quality, the somatic quality that allows us to be able to do that is having appropriate boundaries. It seems intuitively clear, but for many of us, Boundaries are a difficult thing to be able to say no with an open heart. We're probably pretty good at saying no with a closed heart and yes with an open heart. Can we learn to say no with an open heart as a way of protecting our heart? Sometimes we need to say no to people. Sometimes we need to say no to ourselves. Let's talk about some of the qualities of the open heart. The first one and the easiest one is devotion because devotion is opening our heart to God, opening our heart to that which is totally lovable. It's a lot easier than loving kindness, opening your heart to your crazy neighbor or to yourself. It's a lot easier than compassion for suffering. In fact, even in Tibetan Buddhism, they say very clearly that there are these developmental stages of first we open the heart of devotion, then we open the heart of compassion, and then we can begin to do tantric practice. So first of all, ask yourself, What is it you love the most? Is there some deity? Is there some quality of beingness? Your own true self, the higher power. Behind me, you can see over my shoulder here, over the shoulder, that's Chakrasamvara, the presiding deity of Mount Kailash, where I went right after my son was born. And in fact, his middle name is Kailasa. And there's Maharaji and there's Durga and there's Christ in a way those are just photographs and statues and paintings but they're all representations of living spirit but beyond that the more i worship them they're not just representations i remember when i moved into this house i had a party and a friend of mine came who hadn't been there before and he said i really love all the religious art you have and i said it's not religious art these are living beings that i Honored to live with here. <laughs> These aren't statues. These aren't paintings. They're actually here. That is Hanuman right there, buddy. <laughs> okay. Ramakrishna said, Our duty is to fall down and adore where others only bow. You can go through the motions of devotion. You can say your mantra. You can bow, do prostrations. You can chant. But can you find that place of adoration in your heart as you're doing this? Ramakrishna also said, intense love of God is the only thing needed. He said, devotion to God increases in the same proportion as attachment to sense objects decrease. St. Teresa of Lusso, the little flower, said, I felt it better to speak to God rather than about him. Okay, so here we are. I'm giving a talk. I'm going to talk about God, about loving God. And she's saying, hey, wouldn't it be better to talk to God? On one hand, though, maybe if I'm talking to you, I can think I'm talking to God rather than about God, that we're, having, we're all God having a conversation about who we really are. A poem by Hafiz. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, Please love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Why not be the one that's going around saying I love you? quietly through your eyes. That's that's what everybody wants. That's all everyone wants, really. And we're waiting often for people to say that to us. You're waiting, I'm waiting, nobody's saying that. Maybe in this group, we've been together long enough that we are beginning to say that. So devotion. Devotion is really at, at the center of my practice. Maharaji said, my guru said, if you love God, you overcome all impurities. I can try to overcome my anger and my this and my that, but if I really love God enough, I'll notice that when I'm feeling angry, or at least if I'm lost in anger, in that moment, I'm not feeling that connection, that connection with the sweetest love that's possible, with, with the perfect beloved, right? Would I rather be right or would I rather be angry or would I rather be have this emotion or that emotion or would I rather be connected with the beloved? Another quality of the open heart is gratitude. Brother David Stendel-Ross says, when I'm grateful, I am neither rushing nor slouching through my day. I'm dancing. In a way, gratitude brings us into devotion to moment-to-moment experience. There's all this stuff about gratitude journals. At the end of the day, you write down three things in a little book. I, but can we, can we make gratitude an attitude? Ah, I never thought of that. That's a great gratitude and attitude. <laughs> okay. Having the, the attitude of gratefulness moment to moment to moment. You're grateful. Here I am. I got this tickle in my chest and this raspy voice, and it's kind of hard to talk. But here I am with all these lovely people. I think a, a lot of you love me. I hope some of you do. I love you. And... So, there's always something to be grateful for. I mean, I've been at the bedside of so many people who are dying, and some of them are grateful for the life they've had, but even being in that bed right now in that moment, and other people are resenting that they're dying, resenting their body, resenting the medical establishment, resenting the insurance industry, resenting God. Not a good way to die. Can we begin to? cultivate this attitude of gratitude in a moment-to-moment way, even extending it to, can can I have gratitude for the future? I have gratitude for what's going to happen today. I don't even know what it is yet, but it's going to be something. It might even be death, but it's going to be something, right? So we've talked about opening the heart-mind. Mind Mind is the same as heart in its fundamental level. Devotion is the easiest way to open the heart, I mean, even in Buddhism, even in Zen, I've studied a lot with Suzuki Roshi, Soto Zen. There's no deities involved, It's not. there's no koans to understand. It's just sitting there, looking at a wall. And he was the most loving, kind-hearted people, person. One of the most kind-hearted people I've ever met. When he laughed, it sounded like a bubbling brook. Just the, just the embodiment of sweetness. He never talked about God. He never talked about love. He said, I don't teach my students about consciousness. I teach my students how to hear the birds singing.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, this is a, um, my name's Molissa. Melissa. Um, I tend not to speak up too much in, in groups, but um, my spiritual teacher gave me the name of Vipassana, which means uh, devotion and um openness and devotion. And it's like when when I first received that name, I just kind of laughed to myself. I thought meditation and devotion, it's like, no, very active mind. And so how I've created that with an active mind, I don't like just sit and be still. I have to really force myself to do that. But I do it through dancing. I do it through, you know, different um, mediums and having my deities um, around me and, uh, it's, and I'm dealing with a lot of, um, death right now. Uh, one of the doctors that they, that I work with, um, passed suddenly and it's just been, it's just been devastating. Um, for all of us and and I have a friend that's she's ninety six now and she's in hospice and i've been going up and being with her and um just anointing her with oil, praying with her, uh doing the thousand names, and um just just being there and I love that part of it. I love being there, holding that space for another human expecting expecting nothing but it's just that that emotional charge that um, it's just part of my heart and I'm really grateful to have to have all of you. Thank you
2: you're very welcome so Another quality, which I think is a perfect segue from what Amit just said, is compassion, which is much harder than love and devotion. It's really what she was expressing so beautifully. Compassion is opening the heart to suffering. Stephen Levine poetically called compassion, keeping your heart open in hell. We're conditioned and we live in a society that when suffering arises, the immediate impulses try to get away from it, try to feel happy, try to feel good. And yet the great spiritual paradox is that true healing happens only by being intimately with what is arising moment to moment, including and especially the suffering. Can we embrace suffering? And once again, cancer doesn't cause suffering, dying doesn't cause suffering. Resistance to cancer, resistance to dying causes suffering. Compassion is a, a bigger ask than loving kindness is. But at the same time, can we begin to train ourselves to be with our fear of pain? To when we're feeling something painful, we're feeling something difficult, to lean into it, to be with it, to meet it with softness rather than resistance so that can suffering even begin to become the inspiration to open our heart a little bit more. Ramdas famously said, suffering is grace. What a horrible quote, <laughs> but, and I've hated it ever since I've heard it, and I didn't, I mean, I knew it was true, but you get to a point in your practice where you wanna be free more than you wanna be happy. You want to be free more than you want to be happy. If you're grasping at happiness, then we're asking, is this next experience a happy-making one or a not happy-making one? We're juggling. We're, we're comparing all the time. Whereas if we want to be free, we're meeting each experience fully, and happiness will come as a wonderful side effect. But we have to have this trust in that which we're devoted to the Dharma or Christ or God or whatever it is. We have to have enough trust that we can open to suffering and that in that we will find freedom. Uh,
3: sure. I just wanted to ask a question about gratitude before we get too far away from it. So I, this, I run into two sort of related struggles with gratitude. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or advice. One is just in general, it seems to there seems to be a tension between gratitude and equanimity. And I'm brought back to that story that Ram Dass used to tell about the farmer who loses his right. horses and then gets the horses and then the son. And never along the way is he like, Oh, I'm so grateful that I got the horses, or oh, I'm so grateful that my son was safe from the army. He's always just very a step back from that. Aquanimous the is thing, the word. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that I run into personally is that when I feel like I've accomplished something really valuable, especially on the spiritual path. Like I just feel like I'm, I'm practicing really well, or something, some teaching that I just learned became manifest in my life, or I noticed it being integrated. As soon as I think reach towards gratitude, I'm immediately hesitant and worried about indulging in spiritual materialism. So I'm like worried that if I'm grateful for my own how well I'm doing that I'm like stoking my ego rather than falling into a place of heart
2: space. Right. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about either of those in Buddhism. There are what are called the four Brahma Viharas, the four heavenly abodes. Uh, These wholesome qualities of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And equanimity is the protector of the heart, quote unquote. Equanimity is the protector of the heart. That when we have love and compassion and these other things, it is very easy to get lost in them. You can get lost in gratitude. So that we need a sense of equanimity. And I don't talk about equanimity too much because it's not my strong suit. I'm addicted to excitement. I love strong emotions. (laughs) I love getting all excited about God and falling to the floor and weeping and all that kind of stuff, much more than equanimity. So I'm probably not the right person to answer your questions there, John. But let's just talk very briefly about loving kindness and compassion. There are what are called the near and far enemies of these wholesome qualities. The far enemy is the obvious opposite thing. So for instance, the opposite of... Loving of love or loving kindness is hatred. The near enemy is something that could be mistaken for the wholesome quality, but it's, it, it's it's problematic. Looking from the outside, you could think, "Oh, that person's loving," but they're really not. They're feeling something else. And I'll I'll do the the guessing game here. Who wants to guess what the near enemy of loving kindness is? Looks like love. But it gets you in trouble. Sentimentality. Attachment. Mm-hmm. Attachment. Attachment. Okay, so think about falling in love with somebody. If if you really love somebody, there's no expectation of return. It's just love. But you fall in love with somebody, and you want them to fall in love with you, too. You're attached to them falling in love with you. And you want your friends to know that you fall in love with somebody, maybe. And you're glad you have a. A sexual partner or a life partner, whatever you think you've got there. So there's a lot this this complicated mixture. Very often, between love and attachment, and it's equanimity that allows us to disentangle the love from the attachment. If we go down to compassion, the far enemy of compassion is cruelty, right? You see somebody suffering, you say, well, okay, uh, let's cause more suffering. But the near enemy of compassion, looks like compassion, is pity. You're feeling sorry for the person. You're getting caught up in it. So that one thing we really haven't mentioned here is that when I say opening the heart mind, we haven't really talked about the word opening, which means spacious, empty of self, empty of concept. John's saying his practice is going well. He feels like grateful for that. But can the gratefulness be something that's arising naturally in the spacious heart mind? Or is it something that you're you're holding on to with a little bit of pride? There's a defilement, it's a horrible word, but let's just use it here. To what you're feeling is actually gratitude. So that one can have gratitude with equanimity they're not opposed to each other. I mean, gratitude can be exciting even, but you can be excited and equanimous. Equanimous means there's a sense of balance. The the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It's just, I don't care, that's just the way it is, but that's not equanimity. Equanimity is, there's lack of uh, anxiety, there's lack of grasping, and it's, it's, Certainly what you're asking here is a little bit subtle, that one could mistake gratitude as an exciting thing where you're getting lost in it. But like right now, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, whatever part of the world you're in, we're together. This is kind of a nice time together. Sunny day in California, at least. I don't know where you are. And can there be a gratitude that doesn't take you out of equanimity or can there be equanimity supporting a sense of gratitude, right? It's easy to get lost. I like to get lost in things. I mean, I have an addictive personality structure. A lot of people do. I don't know if that answers your questions, but to me, there's a subtle distinction in my body and in my mind. If I'm feeling, thinking, saying, doing something, from a sense of openness and non-grasping and equanimity versus a sense of grasping and being lost in excitement, being lost in, look what I did, look what I've got, right? So that when we were talking before about grief being the enemy of the open heart, grief are the negative emotions that arise in response to feeling separate. Rumi has this great quote, grief can be, grief is the garden of compassion. Compassion has the quality of a connected, spacious heart. Can you begin to then notice these subtle griefs of getting lost in separation? So John was kind of talking about he, he was getting lost in the gratitude and feeling attached to it, feeling separate, kind of getting disconnected from his connection with other people or with God or from his true self or something, right? It still feels good until it doesn't feel good. Does that make sense? Even the Buddha said, as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even so should one cultivate a limitless heart with regard to all beings a limitless heart, a boundless heart, a spacious heart, a heart empty of concept, particularly the concept of I. When we're empty of the concept of I, gratitude arises, but it's not my gratitude. It's not my practice. So that we're being, we're being sensitive, we're being alert to that place where we, we begin to appropriate or identify in a separate way with how good or bad or indifferent things are. So we've been talking about compassion. In a way, compassion is the tipping point of the whole spiritual practice. Before compassion, we're trying to get away from suffering. Now we can have an open heart in relationship to suffering. Suffering becomes grace. Suffering is showing us where our heart still needs to open more. Compassion has a lot to do with forgiveness. Forgiving others, asking forgiveness from others, forgiving ourselves for all the funky stuff they've done, we've done, right? Can we have compassion for ourselves? Traditionally, compassion is taught for the other person. I'm compassionate for those other people who are suffering. In the West, we really need to work with compassion for ourselves also, one of the deepest practices, one of the deepest healing practices that I know of is through your life, the mirror of your life, admitting where you are most stuck and doing compassion practice for that part of yourself. Doing compassion practice for the part of ourselves where we're caught, doing Len for that place that we're so hard trying to get away from. In Orthodox Christianity, they talk about letting the mind sink down into the heart. Let the mind be colored by the heart. Uh, We said before, the heart and the mind are the same thing. And they're kind of saying that we can realize that. That when we're in the mind, let it drop down into the heart. I think we've gone, so, devotion, compassion... Loving kindness. Loving kindness is harder than devotion because loving kindness is loving other people. And a a lot of people we know sometimes aren't so easy to love, right? If we're waiting for people to be lovable, then that's a lot of work. Loving people just the way they are. Great practice. Relationship for many people is where you see where your heart is not open. And then we can talk about What are practices to open the heart? Mantra is one of the best practices that I know of. It's a very robust practice. Wherever you may be caught, you say God's name and you realize that God's name is God. There's no distinction at all between the name and the form and the deity and and she or he who is saying, saying the name. We can pray. I've found as my practice has deepened that all I can pray for is God's presence. I can't pray for money or health or things because I figure that God knows at least as well as I do what's necessary here, that I, I pray to surrender. I pray to open. There's a wonderful practice, which I'm going to include into the guided meditation that's going to happen after our, our break in a few minutes, which is guru yoga of merging with the beloved. It can be a whole formal practice, or it can be something that uh, it just takes a moment where you just have a momentary recollection of the divine and you merge with that, you surrender into that, you die into that. A lot of what we've been talking about so far is doing love, doing compassion, doing devotion. But a very important understanding is that. It's at least, if not more so, about receiving, that love is always available, that the spacious nature of reality is always here to be open to. In the beginning, we do practice. We we cultivate loving kindness. We cultivate compassion. We cultivate mindfulness. But eventually, we begin to let go of she who's doing all the cultivating and let the grace that is imminent begin to shower upon us moment to moment to moment. And that all of these, all of these practices that we're talking about, devotion, compassion, loving kindness, gratitude, forgiveness, on and on, are multi layered. And in, in the beginning, we're doing them. We're doing them from a sense, I don't even feel it yet. Please let me feel it. And then there's this relationship where you are feeling that there is. Uh, a devotional relationship, a, a compassionate relationship, a loving relationship. There's I'm feeling gratitude for something. And then it moves into the tantric stage where the you who is doing it is of the exact same substance as the beloved, this guru yoga that I am that. What I'm invoking to get there is no separate from who I am and who you are and who everything is. When imagine saying a mantra from the standpoint of please God show up to saying the mantra from uh, I'm in this loving back and forth relationship with God to I am that which the mantra is about. And so is everything else that I can experience until finally devotion takes us into wholeness. Compassion takes us into wholeness the place in which we're gonna die into. And it's very important and useful to practice, surrender into wholeness, Dzogchen, Advaita Vedanta, Mahamudra, before we die. So that we have some practice in becoming nobody. Ramdas, toward the end of his life, talked a lot about, I am loving awareness. His practice was just saying, I am loving awareness. And I think that he even got to this stage at the end where there's not even an I who's loving awareness. It's, it's just loving awareness is. There's not even an I who is experiencing it, dying into loving awareness itself. So as we're as we're practicing all of these qualities of the open heart mind, in the background, there can be the question, who's practicing now? Who is it that's doing this? Who is this I that I'm assuming is like John was talking about? He was feeling grateful that his practice was working. Well, who is that I that's feeling so grateful, John, right? Who Who is the I that's questioning, am I getting excited about gratitude and not feeling enough equanimity? That somehow as the mind balances through opening the heart, we can begin to really surrender into beyond I'm doing it. The ego is going to complain. It's a, for almost all people, it's a very long, slow, gradual process. There are some people that have uh, an instantaneous awakening. This slow, gradual process of disidentifying through our heart practice with that which we've been clinging to, which the ego finds so precious, and identifying with our true nature, which is not that we're connected but that we are one consciousness. There's one being manifesting through each of us. One thing I didn't talk too much about is loving the wrathful. When we're talking about devotion, devotion isn't always to a loving, sweet God that you like to have cocktails with, but sometimes it's a God that looks kind of scary in Tantric Hinduism and Buddhism that we're we're beginning to open our heart to everything, to the wrathful, to life and death, to illness and wellness, to having friends and loved ones who are having a hard time, and that you're the person who's able to keep your heart open, even though there's a lot of suffering in the world. We look around the news. I mean, I just was... Reading in the New York Times this morning that the Russians have decided to bomb a lot of the power stations in Ukraine so that uh, almost everybody in Kiev doesn't have water or heat in December. Here we are. Everybody, I'm sure, is pretty warm. You got your Christmas tree up, maybe, if you're that kind of person. And there are people where it's colder than where I am who don't have any heat or water. And... Maybe their friends have been bombed to oblivion. So many stories. It's easy to close the heart, to feel anger, to feel uh, resentment, and one can feel a quantumous, open-hearted anger. John, right? One uh, anger is difficult, it's easy to get lost in. But we can, we can, when the heart's open enough, we can be there for any emotion. One final poem from. Kabir, oh friend, I love you. Think this over carefully. If you are in love, then why are you asleep? If you have found him, give yourself to him, take him. Why do you lose track of him again and again? If you are about to fall into heavy sleep anyway, why waste time smoothing the bed and arranging the pillows? Kabir will tell you the truth. This is what love is like. Suppose you had to cut your head off and give it to someone else. What difference would that make? Okay, any comments, questions about opening the heart mind? Yeah, Gail,
1: this is Anne here. I really appreciate many things from today but just to go back to what's happening in the world and how to hold that inside i mean this um it's just a big thing what's going on and and i feel like such a luxury that we do have a roof over our head and heat and running water and so many people in the world don't have anything it's just like oh i don't know how to hold it sometimes How to hold the agony that's everywhere. Other than just to go on. Yeah. Go into it and then I have to just leave it.
2: Well, theoretically, let me emphasize the word theoretically, compassion has defining qualities. And one of them is a spacious heart an empty heart another is a connected heart another is a warm heart but let's just for a moment think about a heart that's that's spacious and is it possible even going back to the discussion about what john was saying with relationship to equanimity is it possible to be able to feel the collective suffering Or some of the individual, more poignant stories in the collective suffering. And keep a spacious heart. Mm -hmm. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and particularly, in fact, I remember Nicholas, who's here today, who lives in the Bronx, was talking about he hadn't been outside of his apartment for weeks, maybe even months. And all he could hear on the streets was sirens going by, taking... People to the hospitals, many of them to die. And it was, it was really, people would ask me, I'm being overwhelmed by how much suffering I'm reading about in the news. I mean, it's one thing if it's in the Ukraine, but if it's bodies going by the front of your house, it's, it's, it's harder for uh, when it's that immediate. And what I found worked for me was to do more global practice to sit down and do Tong Len or some basic compassion practice for all suffering beings or all beings who have had COVID or all families who are affected by COVID. Uh, Certainly, one can do that only to the extent that you can be with your own suffering. So as you're doing this practice for all beings, it will uncover in you. It will reveal the places where the ego says, this is too much. I don't want to deal with this let's think about what's for lunch or something else but to begin to become aware of that quality where we're trying to open up to the suffering of somebody else and it's overwhelming then we need to have compassion for ourselves i remember once i had a friend i still have the friend but i remember once he called up and said he had been he had been spending all weekend a 3 day weekend doing tong trying to do tong for his deceased father who he had a very conflicted relationship with due to among other things childhood sexual abuse he said i tried for three days to do tong for my father i tried to feel compassion for my father he's been dead for these few years and i just felt i needed closure i couldn't i couldn't do the practice for him what what can i do and i said what you need to do is do tong for the part of you that can't feel compassion for your father. And he started weeping and said, that's what I need to do. We have plenty of opportunity to see overwhelming suffering. And can we not be overwhelmed by overwhelming suffering? Can we be committed to become warriors of compassion? Let me read this Payment Children quote, which I, is my favorite quote about compassion. She talks about a quality called bodhicitta, which is the awakened heart. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. Compassion, however, is more emotionally challenging than loving kindness because it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional distress without tightening into aversion, to let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. That's really opening the heart in a nutshell. When we're feeling afraid, because there's so much suffering in the world, there's two choices. We harden our heart so we don't feel the fear, or we let the heart soften us, and that we let the, the fear soften us and move more deeply into the heart. And that's a choice we have countless times every day with great fear and with very subtle fear. For most of us, it's very useful to start with the subtle fear rather than the big fear of everybody's dying of COVID and they're, they're bombing Kiev. And and what if Trump gets elected again? And, you know, what, and the 49ers might not win the Super Bowl and whatever is bothering you. So I'd like to do a guided meditation now that brings in some of the Qualities of open heart mind that we talked about earlier today. Begin, please, by invoking that which you most truly love, that which you love and trust more than the mind that changes. Beyond emotions that come and go. Invoking in the sense of reaching out. Trusting. Being willing to receive. So that. No matter what thoughts, sensations, perceptions, emotions might arise, you can keep coming back to softening the heart, surrendering into the heart space, letting fear soften the heart rather than harden it. Bringing your attention to the center of your heart, center of your chest, as if you could breathe directly into your heart, nostrils in the center of your chest. If you have some short prayer or mantra, you could say that as you breathe into the heart. Otherwise, just bring your attention to the sensations. Feeling a heart that's more and more connected. Connected to yourself first so that whatever arises... You can be with that rather than rejecting parts of yourself. Agitated mind, difficult emotion, whatever arises. Breathe into the heart, love, compassion, gratitude. Breathing out spaciousness. If someone else comes into your mind, a heart that's connected to them. And a heart that's connected to God, to, the, to that which you invoked. A connected heart without any repression or guilt if the mind distracts, trusting that fundamentally nothing ever can separate you from the spacious nature of your heart. Exploring this trust. Imagine that seated across from you is the embodiment of that which you love Tara, Buddha, Christ, the Mother. a generic representation of pure awareness, pure love. Radiating, love radiating, golden shimmering light. Feeling the awe, the Gratitude in your heart to be in relationship with this pure expression of love and wisdom. Out of this being comes from her or his heart, a ray of light into you that purifies all remaining obscurations in your being so that your being gradually, your body is gradually transformed into the same substance, pure consciousness. Each cell of your body permeated with this pure, radiant, loving consciousness. No matter what thoughts or sensations arise, nothing separates you from this wisdom. Gradually, gradually, your body and the body of your beloved move towards each other until they become one body. Your body, the pure representation of that which you invoked in the beginning. And in this spacious, connected heart naturally arises great compassion for all other beings, all sentient beings, all animals, all people, realizing that they too are pure manifestations of this one mind, even though many people are often lost in suffering, many beings. There is any movement of the heart to close in the face of such suffering, notice that, have compassion for that fear in yourself. Keep coming back to trusting your true nature, radiating compassion in all directions, breathing into your heart, breathing out, above, below, to the right, to the left, in front and behind. But even without doing anything, realizing that this is happening, without effort, it is your true nature. Heart-mind boundlessly spacious thoughts, sensations, perceptions continuing to arise. But being experienced in this boundless, open heart-mind. Each moment, gratitude, each moment, compassion, each moment, devotion. Naturally arising expressions of the boundless nature of your heart. Even compassion for any place that is evaluating your meditation, is questioning who you are, your ability to practice. In this spaciousness, can we surrender into that which does not change? With all the change that continues moment to moment, all the impermanence, is there a quality of awakeness, of beingness that doesn't change, that doesn't die? That is beyond dualistic love and dualistic compassion. That the dualistic heart brings us into the ability to surrender into wholeness. without struggle, everything the beloved. And in this oneness, we still have a body that breathes and sits, thinks and moves. A mind. Being intimately with the quality of experience arising out of this openness. versus how, again and again, something catches, something gets hooked. Resistance grasping. Feeling the difference then in the heart-mind. Becoming so intimately familiar with this openness. The tender heart, the merciful heart, the heart that feels sadness, that there is so much suffering in the world, but at the same time, a joy that the heart is open, a joy that transcends happiness and sadness. a joy that allows us to be in the world. she said, it is better to see God in everything than to try to figure it out. The only important thing is how much you love God. Meditate like Christ. Christ was lost in love. He was one with all beings and he had great love for all. And for the world, he was crucified so that his spirit could spread throughout the world. He was one with God. He sacrificed his body for the Dharma. He never died. He never died. He's living spirit, living in the hearts of all. Being willing to be lost in love. May all beings realize the loving nature of their true being.